My name is Mel Gordon and I'm the Deputy Editor at Marie Claire and welcome to this week's episode of Finding Fearless with Marie Claire. Human rights activist Khadija Blah has spent her young life shouting from the rooftops that women's lives matter. Khadija's story first came to light through an extraordinary TED talk revealing her own experience of female genital mutilation in a way that was never heard before. It was a game changer. Through sheer force of will, Khadija has forever altered the conversation around FGM in Australia. And now, as an ambassador for Our Watch, she continues to fight for those without a voice in the battle to stop violence against women and children. She is an absolute, unstoppable force of nature who is fearlessly passionate, but also funny as our kind of woman. Khadija Blah, welcome to Finding Fearless with Marie Claire. Hi, Melissa. I am so excited to be here with you. How are you coping in isolation over there in Adelaide? It's a bit much, Melissa. You know, no human should have to be alone so much with themselves. It's unnatural, okay? I am trying to survive as best as possible, but we all know that, you know, this has had such an impact on everyone, really. So I am just really standing in solidarity with those who are really vulnerable, you know, the elderly, those with disability, kids stuck in homes where there's child abuse, domestic violence, victim survivors. It's it's really hard. It's a really hard time. I agree completely. I, I really want to just kind of go back a bit to the beginning with you because you really shot to fame back in 2014 when you did a TEDx talk about your experience with female genital mutilation. Hi, today I'm going to share my personal journey with female genital mutilation, FGM. Feel free to cry, laugh, cross your legs, or do anything your body feels like doing. How did this actually even come about, Khadija, and what was that experience like? Well, it was quite an interesting experience because years before this, I was already working in FGM or against FGM in Adelaide, minding my own business, you know, just, you know, fighting the good fight. And it's one of those things where, you you know, as a grassroots activist, you're not really looking for the attention or the accolades. You just really are passionate about making a difference, and I did that. But then I got lucky that a couple of years later, you know, when Julia Gillard was the prime minister, that, you know, before she left, she actually held the uh, FGM summit in Canberra. And this was huge. It was the first of its kind in Australia. And you know, Tanya Plisic was, I think, the minister for health at the time. So it was just two powerhouse, you know, women coming together and deciding this issue did warrant some national attention. And I remember, you know, being invited and really feeling out of my depth. There were doctors there. There were psychologists, all these fancy people with their PhDs. You know, they were ready to go. And I'm like, OK, calm down, everyone. Calm down. Um, a day before the summit, I got called and told if I could share my story. I'm like, oh, well, I'm not a psychologist and I'm certainly not a doctor. I, I, you know, maybe one of those people should speak. They're like, no, 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 no. We would love for you to share. You're actually the only person we have found who actually has a lived experience in Australia who's willing to speak about this. I'm like, okay, no worries. I got mm. there, put up in this room full of all these experts and their big titles staring at me. I'm like, okay. What do I want to say to these people? <laughs> I wanted to say to them, there are women who look like me. There are women like me who are survivors. We are not just a theoretical topic. We're not just people who this has happened to across the world. We are real. FGM is happening in Australia. It's happened to people who have come across the world 
who now call Australia home. They're those who were born here who are survivors of this. And we all need to come together and stop the chit chat and the yidi yada and get to the heart of this. Little girls at the heart of this fight. Little innocent girls who deserve to be protected from this brutal form of child abuse. So by the time I did my little talk, then they went on into the summit. Every second person just like Khadija said, you know, like Khadija reminded us. I'm like, oh, Lord. <laughs> anyway, after that summit, I think it probably will be years later that I would get this invite to do a TED talk. And I'm like, okay. I don't know the bloody hell is a TED talk. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I was living in a in some I don't know fantasy, like another universe. Obviously, where I didn't know this this little bite of information. People were just loving it, and I'm like, oh, okay. So then I said yes, not knowing still what the hell you know the whole thing was about. And then they said, well, so what do you want to talk about? I'm like, you know, I'm pregnant. Okay, what do I want to get? I'm tired. What do I want to talk about? <laughs> I, I about FGM, I think that sounds like a good topic. Anyway, I've got to say, Khadija, what came out was bloody perfect. And I actually recommend everyone should go and listen to it. It's spot on. You basically told the experience of what happened to you and your own realization that you didn't even know that you were a victim of female genital mutilation. And and, And heaps and heaps of people don't even realize until they're actually told about it. And that is really fundamentally one of the biggest issues around it is the secrecy. Oh, it's the silence for sure. Practices like FGM and child marriage and even child, we have seen with child abuse and domestic violence over the years. It's that silence Mm. and the shame that keeps it going, keeps it on the ground. And people who are going through it feel like they're alone, that nobody knows they're going through it, that they are the only one this is happening to. And they are, it's their fault. They must have done something wrong. And I think that silence and that shame, perpetrators, you know, benefit of it. They get off on it, that they get to go scot-free while perpetrating these forms of abuse, while those who have been abused are left dealing and reeling with the consequences. And because FGM is mm. steep in culture and sexism and misogyny and religion in some instances where it's used as an excuse, it, it really, it just infe- it's just like this infestation and it just keeps spreading and spreading with everyone just thinking, oh, that could possibly be happening. Or if it's happening, it has to be a minority. We have 200 million Women and girls, Melissa, who have been cut all over the world, mm. 200 mm. million. That number would not be acceptable for any other issue. If we were cutting off the penises of boys and men, and that would be the equivalent, Melissa, to FGM. It's not male circumcision. It would be if you cut off a man or boy's whole penis off, the world mm. would have stopped by now because, damn, those penises are important. You know, that's what men think. They're so important. We must protect them. Why don't we protect the clitorises and genitals of little girls and women? Why are women not as important? What, what I found really touching about your story was about the fact that you had to kind of point out to your mum that yes. what actually happened to you was was debilitating and, and she yes. defended it by saying, yes. no, it was out of love, I was doing it, you know, for all the right reasons. And I know that you go into different communities to have these difficult conversations with with women like and I was just wondering how like how do those conversations go what are they like Melissa and I think you know I always say to people my activism always started in my own house too often I think people want to go out there and conquer the world and go tell everyone else how it is but won't do it in their own homes but isn't it funny fundamentally our homes the family unit is the most important part of our society it's where we should make the most impact because everything stems from our homes so when i thought of this conversation of going around and talking to other people 
well, I will be remiss if I don't start with my own mama now, won't I? <laughs> the very person who chose to make a decision that, I, you know, that has impacted my life for the last 31 years and will continue to impact my life. And having to confront her on understanding, A, the why. Why will you subject me, your daughter, to this? You're my mom. You're meant to protect me. You're meant to be the safest mm. place for me. Yet you chose to pay somebody to butcher me, essentially, to hurt me, to to uh, to harm me. Um, and while I understand mm. the context of which you do this and that decision, it's still like an ongoing dialogue. And it wasn't a one-day conversation. It was an ongoing conversation we had where I'm angry. I'm really angry. And this woman is trying to make excuses. Then I had to sit, sit down a bit and understand her perspective as a survivor herself. Because she's not just a perpetrator. Mm. She is a survivor. And see, that is a very important point to raise when I go out to communities. I'm usually talking to a survivor perpetrator, all in one. Yeah. And how do I understand their experience and validate their experience while also holding them accountable and raising awareness on the impact of their decisions on, on their daughters? But for those who are future moms who were not moms yet, how do I ensure I make sure that they choose a different path than women like my mom did. And it's not always the easiest conversation. And I come from it from a place of humbleness that I'm not there to lecture. Nobody wants to be lectured and mm. nobody wants to feel judged. I sit humbly, usually on the floor. I see aunties, because usually they're my aunties. They're older than me. They're, they're my mom's age, or if not younger, still aunties. I sit there and I say, I want to talk to you and have a chat about this practice. And I make sure I, I, I use the right language. Whatever the language for FGM is in their language or in their community, mm -hmm. that's what I would use. Because FGM is a very uh, political language, and I stand by it because I think, you know, female cutting or circumcision, which are other names used, don't fully cover the act of FGM. What is done is not a cut. It's not a nick. It is truly a mutilation of, of, a, of the path of a little girl. So let's not call it anything else. But in those conversations, it, it needs, I need to ensure that me and the women are on the same page on what we're all talking about. So first of all, I use the yeah. right language. And then I talk about the health impacts of FGM. I don't start with the law. I end with the law but I start with the health impact. For most of these communities, they have low health literacy and low literacy full stop. The dots, nobody's ever joined the dots for them in terms of what happens to a child at five or six, the cutting and mutilating of that little girl. When she becomes a teenager, that the period, the painful period, the infertility, the sexual dysfunction, and all the other side effects are connected to this act. Nobody's joined the dots. So for those women, those aunties and moms, I am the first person in their life to actually lay out for them what has happened to them and the impact on their health. And then comes the click mm. in their minds. This is what we are now subjecting our daughters to. Then the tears start mm. flowing. We did not know. It's the resounding statement. We did know what was done to us is why we have lived the lives we have where we have the highest maternity mobility rate in the world because of FGMO the fact that we have high rates of sexual dysfunction or the fact that we have UTIs, we have all these health side effects. We didn't know. We just thought we were bad women or maybe we were just not worthy. We were not good enough. Somehow something was wrong with us. But you're saying what was done to us is why. And then we went on to do the very same things to our daughter, not knowing what we oh. were passing on. Melissa, look, I have no words in saying the amount of pain that's usually let out in those rooms, the validation, the sisterhood, the womanhood. And then in the end, I make sure I get them together because I'm all about the tears and coming together, but I also believe in truth telling. 
So I say to this woman, we know better, we do better. So now that we have understood, I need to ensure that you cannot protect your daughters from what you were not protected from. And if you have an older daughter, if you already subjected this to, I need to ensure this doesn't happen to the next daughter. I need to ensure that you go home and talk to your husbands, your, your sons, your community about the fact that FGM was never meant to be for our own good. It was always done for the harm of women and girls, that the patriarchy decided that our sexuality needed to be attacked and controlled, that we as women are less than. We're not deserving of pleasure. We are not deserving of our full womanhood. That needed to be interrupted. Even at birth, when a baby girl is born, a girl, she can be mutilated. How ridiculous is that? Mm. But so I'm going to yeah. give you... I'm giving of action to do the right thing. And I have a beautiful story of a mom in Australia and Tasmania who did the right thing, Melissa. She did the right thing. Equally, the other part of this conversation is that then you have to go and have these conversations with men because it's a cultural thing. Often, like the women can all get together and say they're going to do whatever, but then they've yeah. either got husbands or people in the community mm-hmm. saying, no, 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 this is what we do. Like, I assume that you've also had those kind of difficult conversations with men. And let me tell you, if I was one of those blokes, I would not <laughs> want to be having this conversation with you. First of all, when I go into those rooms, I have to say those men never know what's about to hit them. This cute, beautiful young girl walks in and usually they assume I'm a child, a black don't crack. So I look very young. And they're like, whose daughter is this? Who's this child who's been invited here to come and talk to us? Who's your mom? I'm like, calm down. I'm an adult, you know, I'm just beautiful and young looking. Okay, don't get it confused and twisted. Anyway, once we get over the initial how old I am and how dare I come and talk to them as adults, trust me, the ageism is real. I usually, you know, I, I start with really actually being very complimentary. This man, you know, men have so much power. The patriarchy and the male privilege and the penis privilege is real. So I start with building them up in, you know, as fathers, as husbands and brothers, and, you know, reminding them of the roles they have in, commu- in their communities, in their family as leaders. And, you know, whether they are, um, I don't know, whether they're qualified or not, Melissa, we could be, that could be another podcast, but that's here or there. But they are the leaders. They, co- they are the ones who make decisions and telling them that, you know, the decisions they make do have life impact. And I want to call on them, a call of action, to, 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 to sit with me and have this conversation about FGM. And the moment I usually use the word FGM, what I, you know, whatever language they, they use, you can see their faces go, oh, hell no. Hell no. Hell no. <laughs> we thought was going to compliment us all day, but apparently that's not where this is going. And I go, you know, I want to talk to you about this act, this act that is done for you for your benefit, that you condone, you encourage, and you support. And even if you don't feel like you're actively participating in this, by doing nothing, you are actually participating in this. Because why do we feel like, why do we live in a society where before you get married, you are out here demanding that your, 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 your wife-to-be should be a virgin? And do you know the act that's done to ensure she's a virgin? They go, well, FGM. She is held down. And her clitoris and labia minora and majora, her lips down there are cut off and sewn so that we can ensure she's a virgin for you. You pay a higher dowry to her family when she's mutilated. When your daughter starts showing signs of being rowdy, you say to the wife, you you better get her under control. You know what to do. When you then have wives and you live with these wives and you start seeing these side effects, 
then all of a sudden, that's the only time I see you all have anything to say against the practice. So you are essentially the cause of this. It benefits you. It's done for you. You, you create a market for it because your counterparts in other parts of the world, in communities where men have said no to FGM, when in fact they've said, oh, we won't marry women who have had FGM, it stopped completely. There was no market for it anymore. There was nobody demanding it. Because do you think women just sit by and go, we're going to mutilate ourselves and our daughters because, oh, well, it feels nice. No, 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 boo-boo. That's not how this happened. That is not how this started. A man somewhere back in the Egyptian days decided, oh, these women can't be having pleasure out here. We're nomads. We have to go out and about. How do we know they're not having sex with somebody? How do we know they're not pleasing themselves and have no use for us? Damn it. That clitoris is just there to give them pleasure. They don't need a penis. And that is not good enough. Women must fix this problem. And hence we have FGM. Sounds funny, but literally, it's as simple as that. So I now want you, not as fathers, not as husbands, because I don't want your role, your, your, your relationship to a woman should be why you actually think this is horrible. I want you to understand this is unacceptable because it's a form of child abuse. It's a human rights abuse. It's a violation of the rights of women. I want you on that principle to understand that what you're subjecting this woman, woman and girls to is lifelong. You only come to the party when you see the side effects, when you marry that woman that you demanded be subjected to FGM. And she's lying there. You're trying to have sex and she's in pain. Her period are painful. She's admitted to the hospital. She's told you guys can't have a baby because of the FGM uh, complication. Then all of a sudden, now you're upset by this act because it impacts you. Because it's about you once again. Now, that's too late. I want you to care before that. I want you to realize if we were going around cutting off your penises and then they all cross their legs all of a sudden, Melissa, and they squeeze, <laughs> and then they have this look of terror on their faces and they're like, oh, where's she going with this? Is she about to say we should all get our penises cut off? No, 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 boo-boo. No. Us women, we're not like that. We, we don't try to get revenge like that. No, 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 no. That's not it. I don't want your penises to get cut off. But what I'm trying to say is imagine if that's what was being done to you, because that is what those 200 million women and girls have been subjected to under the name of the patriarchy, which you're all the, the presidents of. So anyway, I really will love your support. <laughs> Inviting this. <laughs> and I know you have it in you, damn it, to do the right thing. And if you don't, you will be seeing me again, of course. I would love to visit you again. You've got this amazing way of cutting to the very bone of, <laughs> of um, social justice is- issues and I love that you use humour to do it. Like why do, you, why do you think that works? Or is that, I mean, it's probably just you. You probably don't even use it in, in a method. I what do you think to do it, honestly. I think I was just born petty, to be honest with you. <laughs> I came out of my mama. <laughs> even my child is petty. He's inherited the petty gene. Um, but no, I don't think I, I don't, I don't set out to be funny. I have to tell you, I'm an accidental comedian. I just, I just accidentally happen. But I think what I, I've always been passionate about is understanding how to communicate with different people. Communication, I think is the key and emotional intelligence. You know, like I said before, lecturing people doesn't get you anywhere. Feeling a sense of superiority and looking down at somebody and and, and telling them, or it doesn't, it's not necessarily what's going to get you somebody, get somebody to come around to your way of thinking or to get them to sign up to your cause. And my cause is not an easy cause to get anyone to sign up to. So I, I have had to, I think, reflect on how do I go around having these conversations i'm not just having them with black people 
I'm not just having them with people who speak the same language as me, Melissa. I'm to, I'm going to a Middle Eastern community. I'm sitting with with, with very traditional people with traditional and conservative views. I'm going to my Asian brothers and sisters and having a conversation about the silence of FGM in Asia. Uh, I'm going to white Australians and blowing their minds when I'm telling them they practice FGM. When for years they thought we are so civilized, we would never do such. <laughs> thing how oh hell no those barbaric people across the world can they just tell us how we can be white saviors tell us please how to save the black babies and i go well i want to save your white babies now oh what do you mean well you are subjecting them to fgm on the labiaplasty for for all these weird reasons and women are having the husband stitch force upon them in hospitals where doctors are deciding to add extra stitches so the vaginas will be extra tight for their husband so he won't know a baby came out of it so i think we need to talk about this they're like oh no oh lord why And I know that you're also like lending your voice now to broader issues. The issue of domestic violence is is similar in terms of violence towards children. But um, yes. I know that you've now aligned yourself with Our Watch and become an ambassador for them. So yes. what what role do you play um with that organisation? Yes. Um, oh, Melissa, I am quite passionate about all things gender-based violence and, you know, FGM and domestic violence are, are all under the same um, banner of family and domestic violence in Australia. So they all go, the, the issues go hand in hand. And a couple of years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting, meeting the beautiful Natasha Stott Despoja. Amazing woman. Who doesn't mm-hmm. love Natasha? I've never met anyone who doesn't love Natasha. And if they don't, there's something wrong with that. And she turned to me and said, can you I've just founded this organization. I'd love for you to be an ambassador. I turned to her and said, Natasha, I'll gladly be an ambassador, of course. So as a survivor of domestic violence myself, you know, um, I it's an issue close to my heart. And I was very young when I experienced uh, domestic violence. And I also knew so many aunties who were experiencing DV. And I will never forget, you know, I think probably I was probably six, 17 or 16, just, you know, a year or two before I went off to university. I had an uncle who was bashing his wife Oh, multiple, like weekly, basically. And then I had other uncles who were doing, whether it was emotional abuse or sexual abuse. There were other things happening in the community. And my mom's house was like the United Nation and a shelter. People came in and out. But this particular auntie would constantly come over with the baby on her back and one child on her hand, and the husband would have grabbed something to whack her. I looked at him one day and said to him, Uncle, I'm going to go to university to study law so I can lock up men like you. That's what I said to him. Um, and that was great. In my culture, you respect your elders. You do not speak back. You go, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. But something felt wrong in seeing this woman come day in, day out. And then somehow they're told to go back. They're told that because of culture, they're told that they needed to know their place. They're told that you keep the family together. Something about all these excuses and the blame and the responsibility put on those aunties rather than the men who were choosing violence. And this was a choice they were making to behave like animals. They weren't being held accountable. Nobody was telling them to be better husbands and fathers and to choose a different communication pathway and to freaking not not use violence as a form of control. Mm. Nobody was telling them off. So, you know, when I went through my own experience, I went, you know what? This doesn't discriminate. It doesn't discriminate against culture, race, uh, class. You know, it could be the, the CEO of a Fortune 500 
woman, you know, it could be the lady at, you know, the woman with five kids at down at Salisbury here, which is a low socioeconomic area. It, it could be any one of us, but based on the fact that we're women, that's what makes us vulnerable. But I really wanted to highlight the plight of women who are from culturally and, and, and you know, linguistically diverse backgrounds, migrant and refugee women who have come to Australia, having suffered war and trauma and left so much insecurity, thinking they're safe here. And then on top of that, they have to now deal with domestic violence in their home, another form of terrorism in their homes. And the fact that their voices don't get heard. They don't have the platforms. They have a community that attacks them and says, this is not cultural. How dare you speak up? How dare you call the cops? And, you know, the cops are not going to be racist against us. Then they go to the system to ask for help. And the system tells them, oh, like I was told, aren't your men more violent, Khadija? It's like, excuse me? Oh, oh yeah. man, aren't they just more violent? It's like, are you, are you, are you kidding me? You won't say that to a white woman. Like, what the fuck does that have to do with anything? I'm here to tell you, man, assaulted me, and you want to talk about at our men? Are they my men? Do they belong to me? Do I have a harem of men just, you know, waiting on me hand and foot? What are you talking about? Anyway, so I realized that you know that is something I could highlight. So when Natasha asking me to be an ambassador for our watch, which is this, you know, national organization that works on domestic violence prevention. And that's what makes it so beautiful. We're not mm. waiting until one woman a week is killed, Melissa. We're not waiting for somebody's mm. daughter, somebody's sister, somebody's mom to get killed. We, I want, we want to protect, we want to prevent the violence because we know it can mm. be preventable. It is preventable. And that's what we want to do. Mm. I don't, I, I'm sad every week. That in Australia, one woman a week is killed, uh, more so than do- domestic violence, is ki- than uh, terrorism, more so than any other issue. By virtue of being women in Australia, uh, a coined or former partner, that is going to kill us. That's really the reality of our experience. And that I think that's heartbreaking. If I look at you know the government's response to corona and you see what can happen when a government um, is motivated to get entire society to change their behaviors but does it piss you off that the same level attention of attention isn't paid to to domestic violence oh definitely oh lord i mean yeah. put the coronavirus aside melissa let's go back to the strawberry fiasco okay because that would be a great example so here we, if anybody remember pre-coronavirus, it's sort of hard to remember what our lives were like before this happened. But let me just take us back just a couple of, what, is it a year ago now? When we had the needles in the mm. strawberry scenario, nobody died. But, you know, we were all told to then buy these strawberries and make sure we cut them in little bite sizes for little humans at home. Um, laws were brought in against the strawberry. There was a whole attack on the strawberry. Like, it was just like, I have never seen a nation come together so much against a fruit <laughs> and, 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 you know, laws and, and procedures to ensure we were all safe. You know, Melissa, against the strawberry. Okay. And I went, okay, this is the strawberry. One woman a week is dying. Uh, Why don't we have the same reaction? Like, actually, people are dying. Like, this is not, you know, accidentally opening a strawberry and a needle is falling off. And I know there were chances of people being hurt. But the fact is, one woman a week is killed. We did not see our government mobilize. Not even a Mm. quarter of that same effort was put into ensuring that we protect women. And then the coward punch scenario. That was another perfect example. 
We saw what Sydney have a whole area. Wasn't that all shut down? We saw uh, mm-hmm. uh, timelines and and we saw you know times that you can go out of the, the out to drink. I mean, we just saw how the system mobilized to protect men from other men. Yet one woman a week is killed almost uh, on average. It, it, the weeks we have had like five women killed. We have the weeks where continuously women are killed. Yet I didn't see the same effort to protect women from men's violence. But when men were threat to the men, that was prioritized. And now we see with the coronavirus, how quickly, yes, the government's obviously capable of mobilizing. But even in that, we see they're still not mobilizing to protect those who are vulnerable. People with disability are still out here leaving the poverty line because their income, their, their pension hasn't been increased. We saw yes, some money dedicated to the domestic violence, but not nearly enough, Melissa, to ensure that women mm. are now locked up in homes with their abusers. Men who are bored now have all day long to, 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 to control somebody, to manipulate you, to gaslight you. And these women have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to escape. Mm. They can't escape to the gym. They can't escape to, at work where you usually will go. They can't go visit their mom and dad and have a breather. No, 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 no. They are stuck. The kids now stuck in those homes, seen, watching dad 24 hours a day. Go at it. But mm. has our government put enough? From what I have seen, Melissa, businesses have had more money. Uh, 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 Contents mm. certainly had more money given to them. Mm. But what about... You're right. What about our families? Making sure our families are safe. Making sure that we send a message that domestic and family violence is not acceptable. Violence against women is not acceptable. It should not be part of our culture. No child should be raised in a home where that is part of their the, the history, part of their memory. I don't think we're doing enough, Melissa, because the sad reality is that women's lives don't seem to matter enough to our government. Because if it did, the strawberry shouldn't have had more attention Coward punch laws should not have been way better than domestic violence laws. We could get away with murder against a woman. You, you, what the men who perpetrated uh, DV uh, get away with in Australia? Oh my God, it's outstanding. But you punch another guy, mm. you have a needle yeah. in your strawberry. Oh God, our <laughs> prime minister outrage, outrage. What would you do, Khadija? No, I what, what? Like, okay, if, if if there was a magic wand, you know, waved over Australia, and Khadija was prime minister tomorrow, what would you do, mate, to uh, to ensure that? Okay, I I am prime minister already in my head, in my dreams. I am the prime minister for Australia. <laughs> I think I'm on this other <laughs> I would make a better prime minister. I tell you, I would bring everyone into shape. Um, look, if I was prime minister, <laughs> the domestic and family violence sector have said this over and over and over again, give us the resources to do what we do best, protect mm. women and their children. Give us the, stop cutting our funding from legal services that help women. Create mm. scenarios and situations where financial insecurity should not make a woman have to go back to her husband or her partner. Create a situation that allows that the family court is not utilized by abusers to further perpetrate abuse. The family court, as they currently stand, literally says to women who are domestic violence survivors, I want you to co-parent with this partner who abuses you and mm. your child, but I mm. want you to co-parent with him. I want you to co-parent with him. Mm. And if you don't co-parent, you're the bad guy. You are the terrible person. We have a sector that is under-resourced, so under-resourced. They're literally scrambling. They don't have enough beds. Right now, Melissa, 
uh, where are, we don't have enough beds for our women to run to, but we have hotels that are being used to quarantine co- people with COVID mm. um, possible symptoms. But that was never, well, why was that always an option? Why don't we have those hotels open up? Why don't we have churches open up to ensure that being safe should not be something you have to think so hard about. You, it shouldn't be something where you're constantly going, well, what's working against me? Systematically, women don't only have to go, I'm not safe. They then have to then deal with a system that literally then backs up the fact that they are not safe because the options are so limited. We have a sector that wants to help and protect, but it doesn't have the resources at its beck and call. It doesn't have millions thrown at it. So our prime minister just giving us some millions in the DV sector. It's not enough. Melissa, I work in DV and, and, and it's heartbreaking day in, day out. When you come home oh. and you're sleeping and you're not sure if you wait, when you wake up the next day, your client is going to be dead. It's heartbreaking to have to help your client try to stay safe. But, you know, we can, we're not doing enough because we don't have enough resources to support them. When you have to go with them to court, they literally tell you, I have to hand over my child to this man. And he's going to hurt that child. He's going to use that child against me. He's like, people don't understand the, 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 the enormity of this issue. It's in every, it, it's in every corner, every suburb. It doesn't, it, it doesn't discriminate mm. against, uh, according to postcode or, 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 or your, 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 your education, your class or, or how, you know, where, where you live. None of that. It is literally the terrorism against women. It is the, the, the pandemic we have ignored mm. for so long. And now it's, it's been compounded by the coronavirus pandemic. It, it, it's come together to make all. Oh, it's a hard time for women right now in Australia. It's a terrible time for women in Australia. And our Prime Minister is not doing enough. Thank you so much, May, for, um, for being with us today. You've been fantastic. Uh, thank you, Melissa. You know, it's so great for us. I think this is a great time for us all to come together, have chats, and do whatever it takes to survive. And to everyone, everyone, men, women, gender inclusive, gender, you know, non-binary people, everyone, people, everyone across Australia, I think this is our time. This is our time to, to, to mobilize, but it's also time to have that self-care maybe we have been putting off, I think. And whatever you need to do to make you okay, there is no wrong and right. Do whatever it takes for you to be okay. If that means dancing naked in your, in your room, you do that. If that means putting some music on, put that. If that means learning how to twerk, I've been perfecting my cheek-to-cheek ratio in my twerking, do that. <laughs> Whatever it takes, do it to be okay because we are in this for the long haul and it is truly terrible time. So whatever it takes, no shame, no judgment, do what it takes for you to survive and for you to be okay. Good on you, Khadija. Thanks so much, mate. Khadija is just a straight-talking, passionate force of nature, isn't she? I am so voting for her when she runs for Prime Minister of Australia. Watch this space, people. Thanks for listening today. Please review the episode as it only takes a few seconds and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. We'll see you next time.